Mark, thank you for joining Inside the Glass Box. Pleasure to have you here today. We're going to be talking about your company, Can Trade. And uh, to start off, I'd like to tell the audience just a bit about what you guys do, if you could, if you could share that. Yeah, sure. So uh, what CanTrade is, is we're a supply chain connector within the cannabis and hemp space. Um, ultimately, we're an application that connects buyers with suppliers and then provides them the tools to where they can go ahead and track their orders, manage clients, and ultimately close deals. Okay. What inspired you to get into this segment of the cannabis space? Um, okay. So that, that, that's got to go back a little bit. So I'll kind of start, start from scratch. Um, talk about how I got into the cannabis space first. Uh, I'm a former professional football player. Okay. And back in 2011, I believe it was, um, I fractured my foot, which went undiagnosed for quite a long time and ultimately took four surgeries to get my foot back into working shape. So basically my career was over. And within the culture of football, I mean, painkillers, all the above, pills, that type of stuff runs rampant. So no stranger to that. And it had been um, after those four surgeries, I'd had six total surgeries and I was not in a good place. My, my career was over and also all hopped up on, on opiates and I needed change. So I started doing some research, you know, I'm no stranger to cannabis, although I wasn't necessarily a smoker prior to that. Um, just dabbled a few times and ended up, you know, finding it, getting a medical recommendation out here in California, started smoking with my roommate, started growing in my garage, fell in love with it and was like, okay, this is, this is excellent. Not only is it helping me, it can help a ton of other people and the industry is very new. So it's, it's kind of new and booming. So that's when I first got into the space. And what year was that approximately? I think that was uh, late 2011, possibly could have been early 2012. And um, I mean, the first, what's, what's interesting is I started growing in my garage, you know, started smoking the, the medicine that I was growing. Mm-hmm. And I had heard through, through friends and family, through the grapevine, basically that you could walk into a dispensary and sell your excess product, yeah. your excess flour. So I walk into a dispensary out here in, in Santa Ana in Southern California, you know, I, big, strong, strapping football player, clean cut. And like instantly they thought I was a cop. (laughs) (laughs) So walking into that, so walking, so I didn't, I didn't get a very good reception um, initially until I, you know, kept coming back and, and then also started developing products uh, for, for basically the dispensaries and and all the above and started developing things like vape cartridges. So that kind of was my, my initial into the industry. And then that evolved into, um, now having a licensed manufacturing distribution facility, um, out in here in California. And then in 2016, I was approached by my founders with CanTrade, um, and they were seeking their software guys. They were seeking to come into the industry and, and, you know, saw it was interesting, a lot of cool things going on. And they wanted to consult with me about what, basically what they were going to create. So, mm-hmm. Um, met with them and I got, I, I literally, I was like, guys, this is exactly what I need. And so I sat down with them, wired up CanTrade right there on the board. Um, and the reason I needed that was because there's not a lot of credibility in the supply chain, especially in these new markets. Um, nobody trusts anybody. There's a lot of fake deals, a lot of fake brokers, a lot of fraud. 
Um, so that's why started designing CanTrade and, and that's what we became. So really bringing that credibility uh, back into the supply chain with functionality, with killer software, um, and then a lot of tools to go ahead and manage that and do things like payments and stuff along those lines. So I want to talk in a second, I want to talk more about CanTrade and exactly, you know, the, the, the niche that you're filling there. But before I get into that, you brought up some interesting things about your background. So you played professional football. Where did you play? So I played in uh, Canada, and then I also played in the NFL briefly. Uh, so I played for right out of college. I came out of Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I uh, went and did an open tryout and got signed up in Canada by Edmonton. Wow. And which is which is interesting because every American player who doesn't go straight to the NFL, I mean, a lot of the ones that are trying to play, it's mm-hmm. really their only option is to go to Canada. So mm-hmm. Canada gets bombarded with players um, and they have a quota of Canadians that they can have on each team. Mm-hmm. So there's only like 23 Americans allowed on each team. And at the time there was only eight teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's nine teams. So very small segment. And then I went and did an open tryout with 125 people at it. Mm-hmm. And that was one of like 10 open tryouts that Edmonton did. So mm-hmm. let's just say thousand or more people. And I was two, one of two people that got signed to, to the team and the only one that made the team. So that's incredible. What, yeah, what position long, did you play? Um, so I played, I played linebacker. I also play safety. Okay. I'm kind of like a, a tweener. In, in in high school, I played safety. In college, I played rover linebacker. Okay. Um, and then Canada only has three downs, so it's a passing league, really. Mm-hmm. They they pass 80% of the time. So their linebackers are much more like defensive back safety types. Yeah. So played uh, played linebacker up in Canada. And then when I got signed to uh, Miami, I was playing safety. Okay. So you actually came down. So you put it. You put in some time in Canada, and then you came down and played briefly in the NFL after that. Right. So I did. I did two years um, up with Edmonton. I got signed by uh, Dolphins, and then I. That's where I. I mean, the story goes back a little bit further. Yeah. My second year up in Canada with Edmonton, I blew out my left knee. Okay. That caused a high ankle sprain at the same time, but the high ankle sprain went undiagnosed because my, you know, my whole leg is swollen and uh, I'm crutching around. So I had no idea that my ankle was injured as well. By the time I healed and I finished the season and actually played uh, the end of the season up in Canada, I get signed by Miami, didn't know that my ankle was messed up. So it's, it's basically I lost my dorsal flexion, which is the ability to raise your toes up. So, um, in running and training while I was with Miami, I mean, I could still play my, my ankle didn't hurt, but, um, my ankle had kind of seized up and I'd lost that dorsal flexion, which caused my toe to overwork mm-hmm. and ultimately fractured the sesamoid bones, which are two just super pointless bones on the ball of your foot. Mm-hmm. Um, they sit right there in a tendon. They don't actually, they don't actually connect any other bones, but when I fractured those, they had died and and basically wasn't easy to figure that out because it, there's just two little tiny bones but it felt like i was stepping on a tack every time my um foot hit the ground so i ended up having to run on like the outside of my foot mm. and that's where i mean the only way to treat it painkillers 
I mean, that's basically it, uh, that and, and treatment, but they call it sesmoiditis, which if you put itis at the end of anything, it just means you know, inflammation and pain of whatever the hell that is, but it doesn't tell you what's really wrong. So, so you were, so you were in Miami, you had this problem with your foot and that's when the doctors told you, you need to go get on opioids to, you know, cure the pain or deal with it. No, no. So not, not necessarily then. Now, when you're playing, you Mm -hmm. get anti-inflammatories, painkillers, you get all the above. Um, While I was there, I know I got some very high level, high strength uh, anti-inflammatories, also things like Tordal shots. I don't know if you've ever had a Tordal shot. It's basically like an amazing anti-inflammatory that you just, you get a little shot and you feel, feel like Superman for a few hours. Um, So that's what happened. But no, my foot was undiagnosed at the time. So nobody knew that the sesamoids were fractured. It wasn't until I got released by Miami, got re-signed back up to uh, Canada, back up to Edmonton, that right when I got up there, I basically went straight onto the IR because um, you know, I, and I had gone over this. I was in the training room every day with Miami and told them, Hey, something's wrong with my foot. Um, couldn't figure out what was wrong with my foot. They didn't really do any tests to figure that out. Right. When I got to my, uh, Edmonton, they started doing the tests and then found that there was not only something wrong with my ankle, but also something wrong with my, my toe. Mm-hmm. And then after that season where I played, I think one or two games, but I was on the, the IR most of the time ended up going in and doing the first surgery. And the first surgery was a, was a bone graft to try to fix the, you know, the fractured sesamoids because what happens, not only they fracture, they had died. So that was the first surgery um, was on that. Second surgery was on the ankle, um, both of which were, let's say, mediocre as far as results. Mm-hmm. And then the toe needed a second surgery because the bone graft didn't take. So mm-hmm. second surgery went in and removed the sesamoid. Um, and then the ankle as well needed a second surgery because the, the uh, dorsal flexion had not come back to a point where I was actually able to run on it yet. It's tough, tough playing professional football, man. You've got to constantly be in the operating room, it sounds like. I mean, I, I've actually uh, surprisingly had a very injury – free career until my last like two or three years playing. I mean, I played 20 something years in total Mm -hmm. and uh, I've had six surgeries, but five of those surgeries came while I was basically after college. So got it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's the level of intensity you're playing at or the body breaking down, you know, more when you're older. Maybe all the. Work I mean, built up. I'd say I'd say it's definitely a little bit of both, but I mean, it's it's a whole different story when you're hitting 280 oh. pound monsters. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I can yeah. imagine. Well, you know what's interesting about your story is that you have this firsthand experience that kind of brought you into the cannabis world. Um, you know, this personal need, whereas I think a lot of other people have entered in the last few years just opportunistically. You know. Right. They, they see this, you know, gold rush going on, right? And what's also interesting about your story to me is that, you know, it sounds, and tell me if I'm right about this, but it sounds like you were actually in the cultivation side of the business for a brief period before you got into can trade. Is that right? Right. I mean, I was growing myself. So growing, growing in my garage, um, just basically trying to maximize there, but it's, it's an experience. 
Did you think about going into that more deeply or? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I don't smoke a ton of like flour. I, I yeah. like the, uh, I like the concentrates. So mm-hmm. like vaporizers and stuff like that, they're simple. And because I don't have a, a background smoking, you know, my say growing up necessarily, um, it's just easy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a lot of smell, you can kind of do it anywhere. Yeah. So when I had excess product from my garage, that's when I started doing research about like, what can I do with this? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's around the time, you know, I learned about extraction, uh, concentration of the cannabinoids. And that's when I figured out that I found out that you could put it into a vaporizer. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of funny how that happened. I was actually at a, a fitness competition in, in Los Angeles, one of those like fitness expos. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking around and I see this booth and they have vaporizers you know it's a fitness competition who smokes right um so they have vaporizers there that had deer antler extract in them Uh um from from some super marathoner guy that that used it and i was just like right there my my mind just went just explode i'm like wait a second you can put more than just nicotine right things right you can basically put a lot of different things in these things so instantly i i knew i had like excess product i'd been working on making concentrates Mm-hmm. And right then I was like, what can I put into a vaporizer? Mm-hmm. You know, can I try that out? So I started doing R&D there. And that's when I started, you know, developing products. So you were way ahead of the curve then. What, what year was that? That was probably late 2012, maybe, maybe early 2013. Wow. I mean, wow. I think at the time from my research, the only, the only like, say, comparable type product around was uh, Open in Colorado mm-hmm. that made like a cannabis vaporizer. But yeah, there wasn't really anything else similar at the time. I mean, from my understanding, you're, you're in this space every day, you know, I see it here and there, but my understanding is that the, the, uh, the oils and the vaporizers, that's where the money's being made right now, you know, on, on the extraction side of the business. Is that fair to say? I'd say not necessarily. No. Um, the money, the money is being made by support equipment services, everybody outside the industry. Really? Yeah, because the industry is getting hammered by yeah. by crazy crazy fees, exactly. licensing fees, taxes. Oh, I mean, okay. yeah. So everybody thinks that the industry is just just filling their pockets with money. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I could. It's definitely happening, but from experience and especially working with a ton of different businesses that that are licensed, that's not the case for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Well, what I think is from what I've seen, a lot of these extraction businesses have been able to make money if they have not, you know, once the taxes hit and once, you know, regulation kind of got to a certain level, they, I, I agree with you from what I've heard, you know, the profitability has gone way down, but there are a number of companies out there right now that I think are operating, uh, you know, in a gray area you know, and that's, that's definitely happening. I mean, you've got in California, you've got a, an industry that was, that's been established for a long time. I mean, it, it was what 96 when proposition uh, 215 was passed to legalize mm-hmm. medical use. And I mean, obviously cannabis has been around way longer than that, especially in California. Yeah. So you've got a well-established industry um, that just wasn't regulated. And then you want to, um, then, then you know, regulation gets passed, and not not everybody wants to participate. And I can totally understand why there is there is just 
I, I don't, I don't know the exact number, but there's a, just a ton of different examples mm-hmm. of regulation going awry and it really affecting the, the people, you know, the, the stakeholders, the businesses, um, and the bottom line. And I know there's a perfect example with things like the licensing process in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and how that was delayed and how these businesses are expected to have a location that is licensable and not can't even operate out of that location till licensing is complete. So they're paying, they're paying their um, overhead and their fees for months on end. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I know that story firsthand. I have a legal client that's up North, Northern California. They've been working on their permitting for almost two years and they've got a giant facility. They don't have any employees in there just yet, but all kinds of capital costs that they've put in. And this is an investor backed company. So all those investors are sitting there, you know, waiting for a return, being asked to put in more and more money. Like you said, cover the lease cost goes. And, you know, it almost looks like a scam at a certain point to, to the investors because they're like, how could it possibly be that it takes this long to get permitting? You know, and it's kind of like, you know, the, I feel like government is talking out of two sides of its mouth, you know, on one hand, you know, everything is legalized and, you know, they've got systems set up to permit people. But then when it comes out, it comes down to actually helping people get those permits. It's a different story, you know? Right. Um, There's, there's definitely places that are very good with it. Um, And, but there's obviously there's ones that are far more complicated and and take way too long. And then there's even ones that have done some wild things like taken a lot of fees from growers and then tried to ban growing. I mean, I forget what County that was or or what city that was, but I know it happened up, up North where, I mean, it was something like 1.5 million in fees. And then, and then basically I said, Oh, now we're going to ban growing. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, crazy. Crazy. Yeah. So Okay, so so did you see that there were all these regulatory challenges and all of these, you know, taxes that were impacting the kind of growing and manufacturing side of the business? And that's why you decided to create this kind of more service provider focus yourself? That's it's definitely part of the reason. Um, now, the, the one of the main reasons is this industry is very fragmented it's highly regulated and there's no trust. So um, the more layers that are added in the middle, ultimately there's more caught that basically higher prices that goes because it always gets fed right down to the customers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, if there's too much of that prices are too high and, or people want to stay in the black market because the prices um, you know, are too high. And even, even people purchase from the black market still because of that reason now, with CanTrade, the goal was to not only bring the credibility back by verifying every business that comes into our application, wants to participate, um, but also cutting out the layers in the middle. Because, and I'll, and I'll just give you an example. Um, there's, it's kind of a running joke in the industry, um, and it's not just cannabis, it's also hemp, because hemp's doing it right now is, is what they call like a broker joker. Mm-hmm. Basically, there are people in the middle that believe they can make a buck, a, a, a quick buck and, and possibly retire on it um, yeah, yeah. by, by utilizing their, let's say past connections um, to, to broker products and add a lot of cost in that middle. I mean, put, put <laughs> points on products like, and I'll give you an example. Someone wants to buy, someone wants to buy a thousand pounds or a thousand dollar 
a pound of flour, let's say they want to buy um, 100 pounds of that. So $100,000, broker gets a hold of it and basically shops it around for Mm $150,000. And and it just comes down to who has the money, who has the connection. Then on the opposite end, you have brokers that have the so-called buyer. And that broker will now basically put out their their uh, inquiry into the into the market and say th- say something like, "I, I need a hundred thousand pounds of biomass," which mm-hmm. is uh, uh, and then and then they'll shop that around and they'll try to get all these companies to say, "Okay, I'll you know I'll I'll put this in, I'll do that." Um, oh, it's going to cost this much, and they're basically just just price shopping mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. But in reality, nobody knows if that broker truly has the buyer. Nobody right. knows. If that if that other broker truly has the product, so then these companies don't trust anybody and they ask for things. So so if I'm a buyer, let's say I'm a legitimate buyer and you're the seller, mm-hmm. I'm going to say before I send you anything, I'm going to say send me over um, your COAs, which is your lab testing and your uh, proof of life of the product. Mm-hmm. So I need you to send me a picture of of the product with the lab testing and like say a newspaper or something that says the date that says that, that you're not lying. On the opposite end. As the buyer, you're going to ask for uh, my license and documentation, which is totally normal if you're doing it the right way. And then you're going to ask for proof of funds. Um, or you're going to ask to have money deposited into a certain account to basically prove that I have the funds that I need to purchase the product. Now, you get into kind of the chicken or egg. Who sends it first? And even if you send it, is it legitimate? Is it real? Because it's also a running joke where brokers will send out a letter of intent to purchase something or COAs to prove that they, they have the product and it's tested. And then that'll kind of go around in a circle of brokers and eventually it'll get back to that broker where they then receive their own letter of intent from a broker that says they have a buyer <laughs> for a certain product. And they're just, they're looking at it like, wait a second, this yeah. is my letter of intent. So if, if you speak with anybody that's been in the industry for a few years and got some experience, they're going to have a story for you, whether they've been screwed or they've experienced some funny, some funny broker nonsense. It happens. Um, and that's, that's the reason we, we started Cantrade. Okay. So, so tell me about Cantrade today. You know, what, where are you at business wise? Are you able to disclose your level of revenue or, you know, the number of users on the site, anything like that? Uh, so we don't disclose that, that information, but, um, can tell you where we're, where we've been, where we're at, um, and a bit about where we're going. So we got connected with, I got connected with the founders in 2016, um, took some time to figure out exactly what, you know, the product's going to look like, what we're doing and did some trialing there. We released our application for the California cannabis market in late 2018. Um, and then that market, so it's been going about 13 months ish. Uh, and that one we've developed to over 1300 businesses participating in that market. Um, and we've, we've closed over 1100 supply contracts within that as well. Um, now as far as the value, we don't, we don't disclose the value or, or the total number of users. Um, and then on the hemp side, the exact same issues that we've seen in the cannabis space experience, got a lot of experience with, we saw, in the hemp markets, but it's happening nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had hemp businesses kind of breaking down our doors to, to, with the hopes that we would provide the same solution to that space. So as of January, as of the first week of January, 
we released our hemp markets application, which we've already onboarded um, over 150 businesses into that market. Mm-hmm. And, and there's definitely cross-pollination because some businesses can participate in, mm-hmm. the, in the hemp markets as well, depending on you know, where you're at, what your state laws are. Uh, but that one's building and growing and growing very quickly. Are there any legal issues that come with this being that you're, you're connecting buyers and sellers across state lines and obviously, you know, at a federal level, this still isn't legal. So how, how does that, um, how do you deal with that? Right. So we, so we definitely don't do that. Um, everything is state geofenced. So when you're licensed within a specific state, you can only transact and work with businesses that are also licensed within a specific state. So, um, no, no cross, uh, cross state commerce. Now with hemp, it's different. Um, you know, hemp with the, with the farm bill last year or uh, 2018 farm bill, hemp got nationally legalized. Mm -hmm. So as long as there's not some, some crazy state restrictions, um, then most states are legal for, for hemp and or, and or CBD goods. And we actually have a, a, a map app on our website that that outlines each one of those states and what the what the laws and rules are so um in that case you could potentially have um interstate commerce for for things like hemp extracts hemp flour stuff like that okay what about the banking side of things i mean on uh, specifically with respect to cannabis does that impact your business or you know the ability the inability for some of these companies to have a legitimate bank account Right. It, it totally does. We, we've had, I mean, I don't even want to say the number. It's got to be like 25, 30, at least payment type solution companies try to try to contact us to implement them into can trade. As of right now, all payments related to cannabis products, they're, they're transacted off the system. What, so not within our application. What sucks about that is it does add, you know, a level of risk, a level of variability to, any of the clients because mm-hmm. it's not as secure and you know, we're, we're just one of a few issues. I mean, there's, there's businesses that are doing millions of do- millions and millions of dollars a, a, a month that are transacting in cash. And it is yeah. crazy. I mean, yeah. if you've ever, if you've ever seen that, you ever see somebody walk in with a bag with a, with a bag with a million dollars in it, it's, it's definitely nerve wracking. I mean, it, it makes everybody, it makes your hands sweat. You're like, whoa, like this yeah. is, this is wild. Right, right, right. No, I've heard stories about, you know, the armored truck having to make, you know, regular stops at some of these dispensaries and, you know, just uh, massive amounts of cash, like you said, changing hands all the time. Um, so it seems to me like that's a big opportunity for you actually, though, that, you know, perhaps you could design the solution that would help payment processing between these companies or, you know, you could implement something that would be adopted industry-wide. Have you guys dabbled in that at all or thought about that? Yeah, yeah, so totally. This is, this is a situation where we are not payment solution experts. So um, we've got multiple partners in this segment that are working on different ways of tackling those issues. And basically we're relying on the, the expertise of our partners so that we can implement them into our applications. So not something that we are attacking ourselves just because so, like I said, it's not, we're, we're focused on what we're making and, and just, you know, improving that, making it as, as good as we possibly can and not trying to jump out 
of our lane into something that is you know, vastly beyond our expertise. When you, when you say what you're making, you're talking about this, this network, this exchange that has right. as many people in the industry on it as possible. Is that right. right. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about that and we're talking about maximizing, you know, the value and what it does mm-hmm. so that we can unite the industry with, you know, a super simple, amazing platform that makes the process of buying and selling these bulk goods incredibly mm-hmm. easy. So mm-hmm. if, if you just give an example, like if you are say buying something on Amazon, you know, not only is it the logistics, the reason, but also the fact that it's just so simple, mm-hmm. you know, push, click, order. Like we, you know, that's the route we're going as far mm-hmm. as we want to make it as simple as we can and basically take out all of the, um, let's say the speed bumps that right. businesses typically face with these large orders and, and basically put that into Cantrade. Right. Is there any fear within your company that once this goes legal, once cannabis becomes legal on a federal level, that Amazon gets into the mix and, you know, quote unquote, disrupts, disrupts the environment. I, I mean, I'd say not necessarily. No, I mean, it's, it's, let's put it this way. They don't have, there's no, um, I'd say there's no cases in which Amazon is doing something similar to what we're doing in any other industry. Okay. So we're, we're, cause we're B2B, we're B2B. Uh, we're, Alibaba, we're, really? Is that fair to and, say? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a good, um, it's fair to say, I mean, as far as like other industries, we're very much like Alibaba, but designed specifically for these, you know, these regulated products and Mm -hmm. specifically for cannabis and hemp. Um, but let's put it this way. I don't, I don't think anytime soon that Alibaba would ever consider coming into this segment of the market. Um, especially because I, I don't know the, the exact rules, but I understand it's not good to get caught with, with, cannabis in in china right 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 (laughs) well even aside from that i think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of value in being focused in this space and being expert in this space as opposed to a b2b platform for all industries you know and i think you know you have uh amazing opportunity to carve out that that foothold right now in that space so tell me, just so I'm clear on it. So how did you come into the picture again with the founders? Because you said that the founders had already built this platform and then you approached them? Yeah, let me jump back. So they hadn't built anything, but they're, they're software engineers. Uh-huh. Um, and we actually go to the same CrossFit gym. So they, at the gym, heard just through, I don't know, through whatever, had heard that I was in the industry and basically asked to have a, have a meeting. So, and that's when they were, they were talking about, you know, the interest of creating something in the space because they've already created multiple uh, software systems for not only large uh, fortune 500, fortune 100, even actually, you know, some of the largest companies in the, in the country, but also created some of their own applications that are on as far as more of a startup. And just one of the examples is, they created a, um, a gym management software for CrossFit gyms called Wad Together, which is still, you know, servicing, uh, thousands of gyms. So being massively utilized. So they took that expertise and we're like, okay, we want to do something in the cannabis space. And that's where we got linked up. That's cool. So they've had some success already. They've, they've been able to develop a software, implement it, commercialize it, all that. 
Right. They are my my founders are my co-founders. They are world class engineers that could get you know engineering jo- jobs with any company they want to. Yeah, oh, that's terrific. That's terrific. So, so where do you go from here? Are you guys trying to raise capital? Are you trying to scale at this point? What's the what's the next step? So yeah, all all the above. Uh, we actually just recently started our our first raise, um, and it's a equity crowdfunding raise with MicroVentures. Okay. So that one is, it, it just went live recently. It got off to a great start. We've already reached the, the raise minimum. So um, that one's progressing. That one's going to be able to basically get us the resources we need to um, execute our plan. And our plan is to expand wow. our resources, our agents, our support, um, and expand it outside of California into you know, these other large markets throughout the state. Okay. Or sorry, throughout the country. Okay. So how much, just out of curiosity, how much are you raising right now? How much, what's the offering size? Sure. So the, um, we're raising the regulation CF, uh, which is crowdfunding maximum. And that one's 1.07 million. Okay. Okay. Um, that's interesting. So, and if people want to subscribe to that or take a look at that, they would go to the micro ventures site to do that. Is that right? Right. Yeah. They just go right to micro ventures, uh, click invest and then right under invest, click uh, crowdfunding and okay. we'll be the first business that pops up there. Can trade. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. awesome. Well, Mark, I appreciate you uh, joining for the podcast today and um, you know, maybe we can follow up in another six months or a year, see where you guys are at and uh, you know, possibly have you at one of our events as well. Sure. Excellent. Yeah. Thank Thank you so much for having me. Had a blast. All right. Thanks, Mark.